Hi, I'm Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now, the largest grassroots national security organization in America. You can find that, you can find us at secureamericanow.com. You could also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and every social media platform that you can imagine. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us the author of the recently released book, No Go Zones, which uh, the author is someone that I've known for a very long time, actually, when he was exposing anti-Semitism, uh, the infiltration of Libya into universities in the United Kingdom, Rahim Kassam. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you to define a no-go zone. Well, we've heard about this now for quite some time. This phrase that keeps getting used, something that keeps getting denied. Um, so I decided to go and find out for myself what these places were. Um, and I found that no-go zones differ depending on where you go in Europe, uh, where you go in the world. Um, in Brussels, for instance, a no-go zone, Molenbeek, uh, is a place where outsiders aren't particularly welcome, you won't see police patrols very much, uh, you know, your women are all covered up, um, hijabs, niqabs. Um, outsiders, especially if they're young women with their hair down, I was there with a young blonde girl and she was shouted at, screamed at to cover up. Um, and then if you go to some, and obviously Molenbeek has a, a massive terrorist problem as well, known as the terror capital of Europe at the moment. But then if you go somewhere like uh, uh, Rinkeby in, in Sweden, you have an area where the police won't go, or at least won't go in small numbers. They won't go, certainly not one of them or two of them, they'll go in six, seven, eight uh, police at a time. A police for the police will escort the original police uh, car. There are places where the postal services won't deliver. In the northern Parisian suburbs, for instance, the buses wouldn't stop in Aulnay sous Bois because they were worried that the bus drivers would be set upon, the, 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 the uh, uh, passengers would be attacked, so on and so forth. So they differ slightly depending on where you go, but the sort of underlying commonality between them is that they are all areas which have experienced high Muslim migration into them um, and to the point where um, Muslims are the dominant uh, um, you know, demographic in these areas. There was a controversy um, when someone declared that Paris was a no-go zone. Uh, you referenced this in the book um, and the response was there are no no-go zones. Um, what is your conclusion? Because you did a lot of on-the-ground research. What is your conclusion? Are there no-go zones in Europe? Are there places where the authorities of these countries and these cities will not go? There are absolutely places whereby it's, it's visibly clear that the law of the land does not strictly apply. Now that may, that may vary from places where police, as I say, have to go in in large numbers, or it may be places where they have to actually negotiate their way in, where they have to consult with a local uh, community leader or an imam to act so as to sort of alleviate tensions. 
Um, there are places in, in, in the south of France, beautiful places by the way, in the south of France, whereby you have migrant ghettos uh, and they can't actually send the police in there without fear of causing a riot or something. So what they do is they send other migrants in, in sort of a fake police uniform to scope out the situation. The, the city of Béziers calls it uh, animation prevention. I think there's something lost in translation there. But, but, but these are the sorts of areas we're talking about. I mean, look, no-go zones absolutely do exist. Um, the, the, the thing is, we've been a bit sloppy in our rhetoric when talking about it in the past. To declare entire cities no-go zones is, is a nonsense, uh, but parts of those cities are no-go zones. And I think where we have fallen down previously, um, where people who have wanted to warn about this have fallen down previously, is by, is by slightly generalising too much. You know, when, when somebody declared that the entirety of Birmingham in, in the United Kingdom was a no-go zone, the British Prime Minister responded, oh, that man's an idiot. Whereas what he should have said is, actually, there are parts of Birmingham that are incredibly dangerous, that are home to lots of terror plots. And yes, you really don't want to go there, especially not at night, and especially if you're not a Muslim uh, of migrant background, because you will get robbed, you will get set upon, uh, you will get harassed, you will get abused. But this has been the, you know, this has been the modus operandi now for the political establishment, is just, just to lie about these things and cover it all up. Uh, and I, I can't wait for David Cameron to read my book. <laughs> Um, I'd love to hear what his response is. Are there no-go zones in America? Should Americans be concerned about no-go zones becoming a reality here if they're not already here? So as you, go, as you go through the book, you'll see that I take you on a journey from Europe to America. And the same things that you would have seen 15, 20 years ago in European cities you're starting to see in American cities. So specifically, I traveled to parts of Brooklyn and saw you know, huge change in the demographics, huge change in the retail profile of certain places, huge change in the, in the, in the people walking around. Again, hijabs, niqabs, burqas, all over the place. Um, and that's, that's the beginning of it. These are sort of the early identifying factors of these places. In Hamtramck, in Dearborn, uh, just outside of Dearborn, on the other side of Detroit, you have a 2.1 square mile city which has 17 mosques. Now that's a mosque every third or fourth street corner in such a small place. You have former uh, car sales lots where they'd have a big sign outside, uh, outside that said cars down it, you know, C-A-R-S. And now it says Islam down it. You know, the profile of these areas is changing drastically. Um, it used to be a, a, a Polish migrant city, but now it's becoming a Bangladeshi, Yemeni-dominated um, dominated city. Now, that is not to necessarily say it will become a no-go zone, but without pressure on, these, on, these, on the local authorities, and the local authority, by the way, in Hamtramck, is the first majority Muslim city council in America, um, without pressure on those authorities to ensure that people are learning the language, are, are mixing in schools, um, are not, you know, erecting huge uh, satellite dishes on their balconies and only receiving foreign language television, um, are not, uh, you know, just, just suckling at the taxpayer teat in terms of welfareism. Without pressure on all these things, yes, I do see that America will, in five, ten years' time, have similar areas to Europe. Why has this occurred in the UK? Both the UK, um, France, I'll expand the question, and the United States have all dealt with large numbers of migrants in the past. What is different 
about the Muslim migration to these countries and specifically to the United States? So this is a, a question that has been asked a lot. You know, how is this different from the Bronx in the 80s? How is this different from Irish immigration? How is it different from Italian immigration? So on and so forth. And the, the underlying issue, as far as I can see it, is that while, the, while you see you had the first generation of all those sort of waves of migrants ghettoizing too, the second and third generations tended to move out, assimilate, and integrate. We're actually seeing the opposite with Muslim migration. It was actually the first generation, they wanted the economic benefits. They wanted to pay their taxes. They wanted to own corner stores, drive taxis, you know, whatever it was that they needed to do to integrate themselves in the country to which they moved. They would do it. It's the second and third generations, especially if you look at the Pew polling and the ICM polling that I reference in the book, the, these young Muslims tend to be more in favor of Sharia. They tend to be more in favor, I mean, one in five young British Muslims between the ages of 16 and 24 believes that you can excuse terrorism. That the seventh In the United States. In the United Kingdom. In the United yeah. Kingdom. Yeah, he believes you can excuse terrorism, that the 7-7 that the uh, bombings was justified, that the attacks on the Charlie Hebdo satirists who drew the Islamic prophet Muhammad um, were justified. Um, so it's actually going in reverse. And we know why it's going in reverse. It's going in reverse because they're attending uh, specialized schools that are funded from uh, uh, you know, terrorist-supporting states in the Middle East. Uh, you have massive Saudi support going into universities uh, in the Western world, including in the United States. Uh, and of course, you have Salafist, hardcore Salafist imams preaching in these mosques, uh, uh, indoctrinating these people. I mean, they, they, this is basically a cult that's, that's happening in, in, in across the Western world at the moment. And the, way, the reason it differs from all those other migrant groups is what I call, and what other people call, Sharia supremacism. This is the idea that your man-made law, your constitution, our act of parliament are nonsense when you compare it to the Quran, are nonsense when you compare it to Sharia. This is the idea that is, that is forced into the minds of these young people. And I've got to tell you, at a time when, especially when sort of liberal politics of, of, of tearing everything down, tearing history down, tearing culture down, tearing tradition down, they're creating a vacuum well, radical Islam is filling that vacuum for young people. You know, no longer do they see an affinity between them and the US flag uh, or the anthem or even the English language. They're finding their affinity somewhere else. Is it fair to say that there is a devil's bargain here where outside states and entities come into the Western countries, finance the building of schools and mosques, in exchange for the imam, the teacher, coming from the old country and promulgating the worst types of Wahhabism, Salafism. Is that, is that accurate? That, that's accurate, but it goes even further. It actually goes to the heart of, of, of current politics. I mean, this is where even uh, you know, somebody as great as Margaret Thatcher went so wrong with the Al-Yamama arms deal in the 1980s. This effectively, uh, the Saudis want to uh, buy so much in terms of arms from the West, and therefore, because it's worth so many billions, to our, to our industry and so many jobs, they're willing to compromise on what they allow the Saudis to do in the West as a result. This is why I was deeply disturbed when, when President Trump did the, did the Saudi arms deal, because it means we're not going to sever those ties that are built on the back of uh, these economic ties. And, and you know what? Uh, just like with what we had with the Brexit vote in 2016, when they argued to us 
that actually we must give away some of our sovereignty because there's an economic benefit. I think people are starting to realize now that they'd rather take the economic hit and hold on to their cultures. You're in your book, No-Go Zones, and I want to read the subtitle, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You. You spend a chapter talking about something that our audience would be familiar with to some degree, the San Bernardino um, Christmas party attack. Um, can you walk through as to why you dedicated a chapter to that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, was, uh, I was running low on content. Now, <laughs> basically, look, I, w I was in San Bernardino. By, by sheer accident, I was there when this, when this attack happened. I was actually just an hour south on vacation. And when it happened, I decided to go up there and figure it out myself. Because I just didn't trust, and I'm sorry to say this, I did not trust American journalists to get to the bottom of it. And, and I wouldn't trust British journalists either way, by the, uh, by the way either, so uh, that's, not, that's not an anti-American thing. I wouldn't trust French or anything. But I, I had to go there myself, because I knew the tough questions weren't going to be asked of the mosque leaders, right? Um, within moments of getting to San Bernardino, I had identified which mosque I thought was most likely to have harbored uh, these two uh, terrorists, maybe even have radicalized them themselves. This was the Darul Alum Islamiyah Mosque in the north of the city. Uh, and I decided to go there and they held a press conference for the small gaggle of us who had gathered outside. Um, and they were, they were dancing around the issues. They were dancing around sh whether or not they taught you know, strict Sharia compliant Islam in their mosque. They were dancing around whether they taught death for apostasy. I asked them all these questions, the video you can see on YouTube. Um, and we filmed the whole thing. And it became clear to me at that time, before this book was ever even conceived, that there is a no-go zone of the mind, okay? That there, is, that there is a place that journalists in this country and in my country simply are not willing to go. Uh, that is a place that asks really tough questions, but it also requires a, a pretty good working knowledge of Islam, which most people don't have. You know, most people who even defend the Quran, for instance, have never read the Quran. When Barack Obama goes to Cairo, prostrate before the Muslim world and gives them a, a speech about how Islam is a religion of peace, he quotes one, one line, uh, uh, you know, chapter 5, verse 32. Whosoever takes a life, takes the life of all mankind. Whosoever saves the life, saves the life of all mankind. It's the Council on American-Islamic Relations talking point. They actually have a hot button in their office and they press it whenever there's a terrorist attack and it fires this press release out to everybody. Um, he didn't say the very next line in the Quran, which was, and also remember, whomsoever causes mischief against Islam should have their left hand cut off and their right foot cut off. Why did he stop there? You know, and so, so San Bernardino's in there because, because all of this stuff is a no-go zone of the mind. And unless we get over that no-go zone of the mind, well then how can we get, how can we actually get a grip on the real no-go zones, get a grip on the real problem? with integration and assimilation. One of the reasons why we invited you to promote your book is that I found the book to be instructive. There are a lot of books on this subject that actually state opinion as fact. You, both on the ground, with interviews, etc., you in fact give a far more measured analysis. You explain how you come to your particular conclusions. 
One of the things that for our viewers that I, I, would, I would like you to spend a couple of minutes on is to why is Sharia a bad thing? What is Sharia and why is it a bad thing? So Sharia is effectively, you know, the, the overarching um, means of Islamic jurisprudence, okay? And, and, there, are, and there are different interpretations of, of Sharia. There's, like you say, the, the Wahhabist Salafist interpretation. There is the Hanafist interpretation. You know, the, it's, 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 it's a broad thing. And actually, if anybody's interested in, find, you know, in, in determining it yourself, uh, there's a great book uh, online called The Study Quran. And it will actually walk you through many different interpretations of, of the Quran and give you an idea of you know, what the moderates say versus what the, what the doctrinal literalists say. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to read the, the breadth of opinion um, on this sort of stuff. Um, but it is effectively not just a, a, a system of law. It's a system of culture. It's a political system. Uh, it is, you know, the Quran is not a, a religious book. It is, it is a, an all-encompassing lifestyle book. Um, it teaches somebody how to live their life. It, it instructs on what side of your body you should sleep on if you want to live your life in the way of the Prophet, how your, you know, food should be prepared, how your, uh, uh, you know, how you should conduct yourself in public, how women should conduct themselves in public. It's everything. This is everything. And to say, and here's where it comes into play most in the Western world, you know, we have these campaigns every time there's an election in the United Kingdom. We have these campaigns going on in Muslim neighborhoods where little posters go up and they say, voting is shirk. Right? What that means is it's anti-Sharia. You shouldn't engage in the, in, the, in the electoral system, in the democratic system, because that's not as good as God's law. That's not as good as Allah's law. And for that reason, if you vote, you're, you're, being, you're basically being an apostate. Um, and so you can see why we have to get to these issues, because you can't understand the lack of integration and assimilation unless you understand Sharia, unless you understand the fiqh. You know, this is, this is, the, this is the Islamic law. This is, not, this is not tradition, this is not culture, this isn't like uh, a lot of my Jewish friends say that Judaism is a buffet car and they pick and choose what they want. This is, this is set in stone. This is Allah's law. You, you may not do anything else. And this is where the big conversation about whether or not reform in Islam is possible comes in. Because there are people out there trying to do it. And they get pushed back and say, well, no, actually. And they get pushed back not just by the Islamists, they get pushed back by the Islam critics. Mm -hmm who say, well, no, you can't because Sharia requires you to give your entire self to this system. And that's a real problem. I mean, that's a, that's a genuinely difficult problem to fix. Is Sharia, or people who adhere to Sharia, is that the primary reason why when there's a horrendous terrorist attack committed by a Muslim, let's say 9-11, that you don't hear Muslims who may disagree with it coming out and publicly stating that. No, I wouldn't say that's because of Sharia. I would say I would say two things. Number one, in Islam, it is made very clear to you that, that your brotherhood, your brothers and sisters, come before anything or anyone else. And unfortunately that means, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, that means the children that die at the hands of these terrorists too. The, 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 the people that are suffering, the governments of the countries that you're living in, all come beneath you know, your ikhwan, your brotherhood. Now, the other reason is the pressure that is felt by you know, ordinary Muslims, and I'll define that. The people who actually 
they'll go to a mosque on Friday, they'll say their prayers, but by and large, they're not necessarily, I mean, they probably haven't even read the Quran, right? They come under pressure from their more uh, hardline colleagues and friends to say, you shouldn't speak out, you shouldn't help them. You know, we have, the, we have a prevent uh, program in the United Kingdom which looks at informing on terrorists, and it tries to get Muslims to inform on their neighbors and friends. Well, actually, most of them won't do that, and they don't want to do that. And that's, that's societal pressure. And it's not just peer pressure. It's threats. You know, there are plenty of examples to show how when Muslim communities, the Ahmadi community, for instance, in the United Kingdom, when they, and they integrate a lot better than, than some of the harder-lined Sunnis, um, when they speak up, and they do, and they hold their placards at Westminster Bridge and say, you know, we do not like terrorism, and, and the, the, the shopkeepers who happen to be Ahmadis wish people a happy Easter and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, they get attacked, uh, their mosques get burned, and, and also there have been murders in the last year, two specifically, um, but the one that springs to mind is the most popular one uh, uh, as far as people's knowledge goes on this is, is the murder of, of Assad Shah, this Glaswegian shopkeeper. Uh, and somebody drove up from Bradford, a very heavily Muslim uh, um, populated city, drove up from Bradford to Glasgow, it's a long way, to murder him because he was wishing his customers in his corner store Happy Easter. And so I always say to people, why, why would they speak out? Their lives are, are under just as much threat if they, if they go against the harder line contingent in their community. Mm-hmm. The, you have social, you have religious, you have political reasons. What is it in, in your book you actually also refer to an American citizen, I think he is, George Soros. Um, in a sense, it's the pushback against those who are trying to deal with the issue based on the facts like you are in your book, No-Go Zones. Can you explain what George Soros and his open society um, efforts or his project are doing uh, to prohibit dealing in a realistic way with the Muslim issue in this society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, by the way, this is the same George Soros that funds organizations in the United States like, like J Street that is, you know, effectively an anti-Israel organization. Um, th- this, this man's, uh, uh, you know, influence is, is spread so wide. He covers migration issues, he covers political issues, he covers cultural issues. The Open Society Foundation is very clear about what it does and what it wants. It's in the name. Open society means open borders. Effectively means one world, one world government. That, that's, that's what they're after in the long run. Um, I don't think they'll get it anytime soon, by the way. But, but, but that's, that's their end goal. Why is it their end goal? Um, honestly, it comes back down to the same corporatist reasons that, that, that I used earlier to, you know, ex- as an example on the Al-Yamama arms deal and the Saudi stuff. Uh, this, for them, is about cheap labor. This, for him, is about money effectively. Don't forget, this is the guy that crashed the British economy if effectively intentionally uh, in, the, in the early 90s when we had to drop out of the European exchange rate mechanism. Um, this was, the, for him, this was a, a massive, massive uh, um, 
risk that he had to take, and he's doing the same thing now, hedging on hedging on the, the, the hate mongers effectively in society to try and force uh, a world where there where, where there aren't any any borders and where people can you know traverse easily and therefore you get the cheapest labor from wherever you want. That's what I genuinely see him being about. Now look. I don't know where his anti-Israel bent comes from. I would imagine it, 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 a lot of it comes from the fact that Israel is a strong sovereign nation state. And that runs completely contrary to what the Open Society Foundations are interested in. Um, but but you'll, you'll hear the name mentioned all over the place. And you get to the point where you start thinking, well, this must be some sort of conspiracy theory. This man can't be behind so many things. But they, you know, it's got to the point where he doesn't even hide it now. He absolutely hates nation states. He absolutely hates national democracies, uh, and he hates the idea of sovereignty. And why? Because it means that you, you know, if you have one government to control, it's a lot easier than having 40 different governments with all different priorities you have to control. And, and I genuinely think, I don't think he's evil, by the way, and a lot of people think he's evil. I think he thinks that's what's best for humanity, but he's wrong. Do you, um, can you just spend a short time trying to answer the question, how is it that left-wing radicals, politically left-wing radicals, who don't, who want to break down all the social barriers in society, et cetera, et cetera, team up with the most fundamentalist and radical Muslims? Yeah. This is the old, uh, you know, the old hope that the crocodile will eat them last, um, but the crocodile is still going to eat them. Um, nonetheless, look, this is what we call in Europe the Red-Green Alliance. I understand that in the United States, red is the color of the Republican Party, but you're just going to have to come to terms with the fact that red is the color of communism, okay, and socialism, um, and, and green is the color of Islam. So this is the Red-Green Alliance we're talking about here. Uh, and, 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 and really, it, part, of it comes to, part of it comes back down to that, what are we talking about with George Soros, is that they see mass migration from the Middle East, from North Africa, um, from South Asia, as being part of the way to create an open society, being part of the way to destroy borders. Now, the average leftist on the street doesn't understand that, that he or she is effectively a lobbyist for big corporate interests, right? Um, they just, they just be, they've been sold this idea that they're doing it for politically correct, pro-multicultural, diverse, rainbow, let's all make out reasons, right? That's what they think. Um, but actually, when you follow the chain up, it's something, it's something more sinister. You can march 400,000 people down the National Mall in Washington, D.C. when a president gets elected. You can't march 400 people to Livonia in Michigan when young girls are having, getting female genital mutilation. There is a massive disconnect between these two people. But what they do have in common, what they genuinely have in common, is they, they, they eye the destruction of, of what we have traditionally known as the West. And you see it now going on with the monuments being torn down. You see it now with the attacks on uh, uh, America's history. Why do they want to attack America's history the same way that the, the uh, Islamic radicals want to attack America's history? Because when you, when you reduce something down, when you take away everything it stands for, you'll notice there are fewer American flags flying around Washington, D.C. now than there were 10 years ago. When you take away somebody's identity, when you take away their culture, then you leave a vacuum and they want to fill that vacuum with something else. Now the Marxists want to fill that vacuum with Marxism, and the Muslims want to fill that vacuum with Sharia. And let me tell you something, if, if that vacuum does exist, if, if, if it falls, if, if our civilization falls the way they want it to, then they're going to start going at it to see who wins that war. Um, I want to thank Raim Kassam for 
an enlightening conversation and a fantastic book on the challenge of Muslim immigration in this country as well as in Europe. And I urge everyone to purchase this book. Again, I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. And I hope you'll join our community of millions of Americans uh, to uh, take the advice of people like Raheem Kassam. Thank you very much, Raheem. I'm Raheem Kassam. This is No-Go Zones, how Sharia law is coming to a neighborhood near you. I'd like to thank Secure America Now for having me. And uh, yeah, get the book. I'm sure you won't be disappointed.